My, my name is Ross. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, if, if you got your Bibles, go to Romans 8. I'll add my welcome to Todd's welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, so today was our first, we, we had our launch Sunday out in Henderson. In fact, right now, what time is it? It's 11. So it may be wrapping up. Depends on, I bet he doesn't preach as long. So they're probably wrapping up. And, um, but here's, so there are a lot of fun things about that. And we'll, uh, there's some pictures on the screens in the foyer. And we'll, I, I'll give you more of an update next week when I, when I know. But here's one of the things I do know. He texted me just a little bit ago and said uh, they had more people than they had chairs for on the first Sunday. So that's pretty fun, right? Uh, then I told, then I texted back. I was like, yeah, well, we'll see if they come back. And um, <laughs> give me brother of encouragement. That's all I am, you know. Um, okay, all right. That's enough. Go to Romans 8, all right? Romans chapter 8. This is our second of three weeks in Romans chapter 8, uh, the Mount Everest of the Bible in many ways. I mean, so it doesn't, you know, we don't, the air doesn't get any thinner in God's Word than it does here in Romans chapter 8. And the reason is, is because, um, so, so I, Paul is going to say things, breathtaking things, that th- the truth is in one reading, you know, or in one Sunday, or in three Sundays, or in 20 Sundays, or in 20 years. This is the truth. You can't take all that what Paul is saying in. I mean, there is, there is such beauty and depth and richness to what he's saying. And the truth is, I mean, Romans 8 is one of those chapters. I mean, so start in 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and it, um, all of Romans, really. Um, oh, well, all the Bible, really. But, but back down to here. I mean, so th- this is one of those that like in the seasons of your life, you, you read it and God's Spirit um, opens your eyes, I think, to different things in different seasons. I, mean, I think the Spirit does that through, through all of God's Word. It's living, it's active, sharper than a two-edged sword. But Romans 8 is one of those where if we really believed it, I mean, if we really did, I mean, if, if we really, truly, down deep in our hearts, really believed what it is that Paul was saying about who we are, whose we are, that the, that the very Spirit of Christ dwells in us. I mean, if we believed that, I mean, like, knowingly believed it, I mean, there is, there is no end to the blessing and the victory and the joy that we would know this side of heaven as we long and wait for heaven to come. Our challenge is, is that we so easily forget this, or we read it and we think, oh, man, that's like really lofty Christianity stuff. Maybe someday I'll graduate into that, or I'll mature into that, or, or um, you know, sometime later in my life, I'll, I'll have time to, uh, to, 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 to work some of these things out. And I guess I'm wanting to tell you is, None of this, none of this is dependent upon you. All of these things are true about you if you're a believer right now. That the indwelling Spirit of Christ with all his power and all his privileges and all that he's doing to reorient your priorities, all of that is absolutely true right now. And so, I can't just say it and then you go, oh, okay, great. And then you, it, it, it takes our minds washing over this, the Spirit of God opening our minds and illuminating our hearts so that we, we see it and we read it and we believe it and we experience it. And that's what Paul's wanting to do. And we're in this middle section of Romans 8. And so, so let me just go ahead and say this. It, it is a totally weird section, all right? And, and, and by weird, in the Greek, what I mean 
is weird, all right? And the reason is because he's, because, so you're going to follow me, and I probably did it wrong. Like, I probably should have not put all of these things together in one Sunday, but I didn't get far enough last week, so that's the, that's the price I pay this week to get to next week. But, but here's the thing. So, in, in verses 12 through 17, okay, he's going to tell us two things. And I'm going to linger there probably longer than you want me to, but I want to, I want to make sure we get it. Because so, so, he's going to say this. Listen, you're no longer of the flesh. The flesh, this is bad. Uh, the flesh is um, everything about man or woman that is opposed to God. And the flesh is what you're so familiar with and, and what knows you and, and what is always tempting you and drawing you back into this world that is in rebellion against God. And it's always there and it'll be there while you breathe air on this planet. But he's going to say, Listen, you don't owe the flesh anything. You're not in debt to the flesh. You're not of the flesh. You don't walk in the flesh. He wants you to know you walk in the Spirit. You're indwelt by the Spirit. It is the Spirit of it. You are of the Spirit of God. And yet we find ourselves so often having our attention drawn away from who we are to who we were. And what Paul's going to say is, listen, there's a way that you can go to battle against the flesh. There is a way that you can go to battle and kill the sin in your life. And that's what he's going to say. And then he's going to say, hey, not only that, um, some, some amazing things have happened to you as far as your identity and and." We'll look at this, and it's breathtaking. He's going to say we were adopted, that we're heirs of God, that our inheritance, we have an inheritance from God. And then he's going to speak to us about how creation, this planet Earth, that is spinning on an axis and revolving around the sun, is subjected to Futility, he says, because of our sin, and yet this planet, this creation, all of it is, is groaning and waiting. And you know what it's waiting for? It's waiting for you and I as believers to be revealed for who we are. It's, it's, it's amazing. I can't believe he says what it is that he's going to say. And what Paul is is speaking to, is he speaking to that deep part in us that wants to believe, that longs to belong to something greater than we've ever known in our life, that wants us, uh, the, 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 the part of us that wants to be loved more than we ever thought we could ever be loved. The part of us that wants to be secure more than we ever thought we could ever be secure. In fact, all the great literature and art and movies, what, what, one of the, the reasons that a, that a book or a, or a movie or something like that gets really popular is because it taps into the deepest longings and the deepest desires that we have. I'll give you a couple of examples. If you think about Harry Potter and why Harry Potter was so popular. So, J.K. Rowling sells 800 zillion books and builds a story around an orphan boy who's being taken care of by an aunt and uncle that don't like him and make him live in a closet under the stairwell and every, no, no, one, no one even remembers his birthday. And then all of a sudden, an owl shows up with a letter inviting him to Hogwarts, and, and all of a sudden, Harry steps into this world and realizes there is a place he belongs. There is a place that he's valuable. And for seven books, this orphan then becomes a hero, and it taps into what we're longing 
to, you know, what we hope, what we long to be true in our own lives. I mean, you think about the Lord of the Rings and what uh, uh, Tolkien does with that. He takes the hobbits, the least of all those in this, you know, hobbit world. And those are the ones that become the heroes. Those are the ones that find the highest purpose in life. I'll give you one more. Cinderella. Disney made millions tapping into that part of us that wonders, does anyone really want us? And over and over and over. And what Paul's going to answer is, Yes to all of those things. You, you do not have to live wondering. You don't have to live like, an, uh, uh, like, like those who view themselves as, as an orphan or, or without a home or, or without someone. So, so look, look, look at what he said. I'm going to read a few verses. We'll talk about it. We'll go on. So, so look, look at verse 12 of chapter 8. He says this, So then, brothers, we're debtors. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh or the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, the old King James had this great word there, if you mortify the flesh or you mortify the deeds of the body or the deeds of the flesh mortification. See, verse 12 is this interesting thought. He starts out and he says this, hey, hey, you're not, um, you're, you're not debtors. And then he, it looks like he's going to give us, an, um, you're, you're not debtors to uh, the, the flesh. And then we think he's going to say, but, the, but you are debtors to something else. So, we're debtors not to the flesh. And to, so, to be a debtor simply means you have an obligation. It means if somebody does something for you, you've got to pay it back or it's a favor that's got to be returned. You can think of like Marlon Brando and The Godfather, 1972, and the guy comes before him in his office at his daughter's wedding. He says, you know, would you do this thing for me? And the Godfather says that, you know, that famous thing, and he says, well, Yes, I will. I and mean, someday, and that day may never come, but I'll ask something of you, and I expect you to do it. And so, it, it, that moment changed that guy's life because now what he does is he lives now in fear and in obligation of that day coming, of that day that he's got to pay back. So, what Paul is saying is when it comes to the flesh, when it comes to who you were, when it comes to how this world is in rebellion against God, when it comes to how... All of this is in contrast with who God is. You owe that nothing. You don't owe it anything. And then what you expect him to say is, no, we're not debtors to the flesh, but we are debtors to God. And yet Paul doesn't say that. It's almost as though he leaves a sentence unfinished. It's almost as though he just leaves that hanging out in the air. And I think he does that because he wants us to press into it. He wants us to go, wait a minute, Paul, you didn't finish your sentence. Or did you? And I think he purposely leaves that undone because, because he doesn't want in any way f for us to hear that this Christian life that we live is in some way paying God back or returning a favor to him. So I've already said Romans 8. I said it last week. I'll say it again this week. If you go through Romans 8 and you look for the imperatives or you look for the commands or you look for the, the you shoulds in this chapter, you're not going to find them. What Paul is making a case for is who you are in Christ and not what it is that you can do for God. What he's telling you is everything that God is doing for you through his spirit and in you. This is about what God is doing. And so when he says, listen, you got to mortify the flesh. You got to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You got to put to death the sin in your life. You got to kill the sin in your life. He says it though, it's by the Spirit you have to do it. Which means 
that the killing of the sin in your life, the resisting the sin in your life, the, the meeting temptations head on in your life has to be something that's done supernaturally, not in your own strength. That if it has to be done by the Spirit, it means it has to be done supernaturally. Here, here's the, the reality. He, um, so, so how do we do it? Let me, let me, let me say it this way. So, so if, we, if we put the flesh to death, if we put this to death, if we meet temptation, how do we do this by the Spirit? And I think the first thing is we have to ask God's Spirit. We have to ask God by the Spirit of God if He would um, uh, reignite in us, cause us to remember that sin is a really big deal, that there is a seriousness that comes with sin. See, we so easily get lulled into having all these categories. I'm like, well, there's little sins and there's big sins. No, no, there's white lies and there's bad lies. You know, this little thing, it doesn't really matter. It's not hurting anybody. We begin to think that way. And I think what you've got to do is stop. And you know what? Even right now, as, as I'm talking and as you're listening, pray, God, would you do that? Would you remind me in this moment that sin is serious? In fact, it is so serious. Sin is so serious. And it is so something I could never do. I could never do anything about on my own. That you, it, I mean, it is to the degree that you had to send your son out of eternity, into history, to die a death on a cross to deal with sin. That it wasn't just a decree that could be made and sin be dealt with. You couldn't send an angel to do it. That it required the very blood of your eternal son to deal with sin. And it's a great thing to go, you know what? I hadn't thought about sin being that serious in a while. And asking the Spirit of God to bring the weight and the deadliness of sin fresh to my mind. John Owen, in this great deal, this mortification of sin. It's a really hard read. It's a short book. It's a hard read. Nobody's written anything better, though. And it, but he goes on, and it, one of the things he says is like, look, here's the thing about sin. Sin always aims for everything in your life. So you think you can just flirt with it? You think you can take it out on a date? You think you can buy it dinner and drop it off at the door? Sin wants everything in your life. Sin wants to take the temptation of a glance and run it all the way down the road to adultery. It wants to take the, the whisper of something that you covet or are jealous of and take it all the way down to the ruin of your life. Sin always wants more. It is a wild animal that cannot be tamed. It always wants to grow to its full strength in your life life, and it's coming to terms with. This is serious, so serious that the eternal Son of God stepped out of eternity into history to die for our sin. So, that's the first thing. How do we kill sin by the Spirit? We have to ask the Spirit of God to bring back to us the gravity and the weight of what sin is. Secondly, we have to ask God, that through His Spirit, He would reveal in us what's going on underneath the surface of sin when we're tempted. You might think about it this way. Most of us, we read this and we go, okay, so what Paul's saying, this mortify the flesh, this kill the sin, what he's saying is stop doing bad things. And I would say, if Paul thought saying stop doing bad things would cause you to stop doing bad things, he would have said it. But the reality is that's totally insufficient. And, and, and part of it's asking, okay, what, what's going on underneath the sins? So, sin at its heart 
at its heart, at its very root, sin is this. It is not trusting God. It is not trusting God for who He is. It is not trusting God for what He's promised. It is not trusting God with our life. And, and, it, and the temptation is for us to be our own lords, our own saviors. And so sin comes along and finds us living as, as orphans, those, those that, you know, we, we wish God would want us, and yet we don't quite feel like we belong, and, and we're earning our way to him, and, and all of those things that get up, and then sin comes, and it says, okay, listen, God really can't be trusted for all those things. And then it presents you with something, and your heart says, oh, no, you know what, I can't be happy without that. And I won't be satisfied if I don't get that. And flesh comes and it tempts you with a promise, an appeal, and it always offers promises that it can't keep. And says, this is the way you can save yourself. This is the way you can make yourself something. This is the way you can control your life or you can call your shots. And most of your sin is the symptom of you not trusting God. And it's asking the Spirit to help you have clarity about where do I not trust God? What do you not trust God for? What area of your life do you not believe that God cares about or what need do you think he's not going to meet? What, what desire do you think he, he doesn't care about in you? Knowing that is going to, you'll know, you'll know where the point of weakness is in your life and, 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 and asking God's spirit to open your eyes to that. And then I would say this. The, the third thing, and, and this is maybe the most important thing, we've got to change our strategy. We've got to change our strategy when we're tempted with sin, when the flesh comes. If we're going to kill sin, we've got to change our strategy from, from taking those temptations to the law and turning and taking those temptations to the gospel. So the law, it happens like this. When we take our temptations to the law, we usually do something like this. We, we preach these little sermons, we, you know, we, we, we have these, you know, things that we say, okay, um, so I'm not going to do that because, you know, um, God's going to get me if I do it. Or, I, you know, I got to say no to that or I'll get caught or I'll be embarrassed or I'll hate myself in the morning or, or whatever it is. And while all that may be true, that kind of law, that kind of motivation doesn't kill sin. It, it's taking your temptation to the law and hoping that that will whip your willpower up enough for you to be able to say no. And I don't know, I look around this room, most of you have lived long enough in life to know that doesn't work anyway. Here's what... Here's what he's saying. When he's saying that by the Spirit, it means that you've got to take those temptations. You have to, in those moments, go to the gospel, asking the Spirit of God to overwhelm you with God's love for you, to show you the depth of God's love. And when you look at the depth of God's love, do you know the place to look? You look to the cross. When, when I say... When that temptation comes and that sin comes and that flesh comes and bids you, I have what you're looking for. You being able to say, no, no, no. I'm going to turn my eyes, turn my heart, turn my affections by the Spirit to the gospel. And some of us, here's a good strategy. When's the last time you preached the gospel to yourself? I mean, this may sound totally weird, but the reality is, dude, we got to do that every day. 
I mean, do you know what the gospel is? The gospel, that you're a sinner, that, that you are hopelessly without God and no way to get to him. And so God sent his son to take on flesh to become your sin and to die in your place, become the object of God's wrath. He really died. He really went to the grave and then was raised to new life. And it's, and it's you reminding yourself of the gospel every day. And in those moments, you know, when, when you're tempted, you know, what's the thing? You know, or the website, or you're tempted to define your worth based upon how many likes you get or followers you have. Or you find yourself wrapped up in or trying to define your success through your children. Which, by the way, you know why that's such a terrible idea? Because when you do that, you make idols of your children. You make these little monsters into gods. And then what you're doing is you're hoping that they're going to save you from all of your insecurities and all your fears of not measuring up. And so when you're tempted with that, or you're tempted to believe money will give you security and prove your worth, or you're tempted to, to believe, you know, out of anxiety or fear that the threat of money is going to bring you hopeless, the threat of not having money is going to bring you hopelessness, or you're tempted with the idol of being a part of a, of a certain in-group If I was just in that group or on that text thread or invited to that thing, I'd be, I'd be important enough or loved enough or valued enough. And when your heart gets captured by that or you find yourself thinking in those directions and, and, it, and you cry out to God in that moment, help me know that that won't save me. And I don't need that to feel loved and to feel in control and to feel valued and to feel significant and to be satisfied. And ask the Spirit of God to turn your eyes to Jesus. Remember the agony he endured for your sin because he loves you. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, skip down real quick. I, look at verse 26 and 27. I just want to show you something. I'm going to talk about it more next week. But they're like these groanings. Just, I just want you to know. So you say, well, how does that work? And I say this. All you say is, Holy Spirit, you've got to help me here. I can't do it on my own. And then you find, it says in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches hearts. And he who searches hearts knows what's in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to what? The will of God. Do you know what happens when you do that in that moment? Here's what you can rest assured in. That in those moments when the flesh comes to drag you away, and in that moment, you cry out to God by His Spirit. And you might not even know the words to say in the moment. Do you know what's happening at that moment? Let me tell you what this power looks like. Whether you feel it or experience it or not, it is, a, it is to be believed. Just think about this for a second. That at that moment when you do that, that the Spirit of God, He, is, he, he dwells in you and He begins to pray for you 
at the very depth of who you are, and it says groanings too deep for words. He, he is praying for you things that you cannot even articulate that are too deep. And then when he prays, you know what happens? Who's he pray to? You have the Spirit of God praying to God the Father. And in the midst of that, God the Son is seated at the right hand of, the God, of God the Father. And so you have the Spirit of God indwelling you, groaning prayers for you to God the Father as God the Son is there interceding in this whole thing. The entire Trinity has taken up in that moment to pray for you and to hear those prayers and to intercede for you. Just like I said, if we believed, if we really got hold of what Paul's saying, if it is it's breathtaking to realize. Well, okay, too, too long on that, but, but let's go because we've got more. So, so look at this, verse 14 through 17. The, um, look, look at, so this is, he's, talking, he's speaking to our privilege here, our, our privilege as those who are in Christ and have the Spirit of God indwelling us. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, and, and then there's this phrase, and I'm going to talk about this phrase in a second, but provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Being led by the Spirit of God. Being led to hate the things that the Spirit hates, the sin in our life. Being uh, led to love the things that he loves. You know what the Spirit of God in our life loves? He loves for you to experience the love of God. It's what he's, that's why he indwells you. So that you will know and experience Jesus. And it says you're adopted as sons, you're heirs as children, you have all the rights of the Son of God, you have all the riches of a child of God. And, and yet here is the reality. I've been around church long enough and I've been around believers long enough to know that there, there are a lot of you, if we were to sit down and we were to talk about it or we were to, hey, break out in small groups and, 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 and work through this passage with some other people, what would inevitably come up in all those groups with lots of you. And, and you might say it differently than the way I'm going to say it. But something about this experience resonates. And that is that, that even as a believer, you would say, I'm a believer and I come to church. And I, but, but I have this feeling like, like I'm an outsider. You know, standing apart, like, like I'm out on the, on the fringe you know, and I'm, and I'm waiting to belong, or I'm, or I'm trying, to, trying to get in with God better. I, I, I want to kind of be in his inner circle, or I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, well, I'm just not there yet. I, maybe one day I'll, I'll get there. But you still feel like you're on the outside with God. And, and I would say, look, that... This is why I think God says, 
That's why he calls the Spirit a spirit of adoption. Because we are not orphans. We are his. We are not without a father. We are not without a family. We are not without an inheritance. We're his. Now, I want to say two things about this. So, one of those things I want to say is it con- contrasting that with an orphan. Orphan. So, so these are, these are, this is a huge stereotype, but, but I think it captures what God's speaking to when he says, look, I've given you a spirit, my spirit, the comforter, the helper, the spirit of Christ that indwells in you. And here he says, it's the spirit, he's the spirit of adoption. See, orphans, this is how they operate. They, they know they have to take care of themselves. Orphans know they have to be strong. Orphans have to keep their guard up and keep anybody from taking advantage of them. Orphans won't let themselves depend on anyone. They're afraid they look weak. Orphans yearn to be taken in and loved, but they never will. They doubt they ever will. Orphans want to be accepted. They want to belong, but they only trust themselves. They don't get too close. Orphans feel safer when they linger on the outside, although they long to be on the inside. And what God's saying to you, you're not an orphan. In fact, he's taken the great care to say, you have the spirit of adoption. You're his. Now, more than that, not only do you have the spirit of adoption, but notice, the spirit of adoption, when the spirit of adoption comes, when when God's spirit comes and indwells us, and there's, go through the Bible, the New Testament, probably a hundred things we could say happens when the spirit of God comes and indwells us. But I don't want you to miss this one thing that Paul talks about here. As he calls the Spirit of God, he calls him the Spirit of adoption. God's Spirit comes and gives us language, language of intimacy, language that is emotional, language of experience. So, notice this, this this cry, this Abba, Father, notice where it comes from. That comes from the Spirit. So God, when he sends his Spirit to indwell you, he sends the Spirit to also give you the language by which you can cry out to God. I mean, it's like this. It's like, now I'm imagining this. You're not going to find this anywhere in the text. It's my divine imagination, which probably isn't very good. But you can think about it this way. It's as though God has this conversation with his son. He says, oh, for eternity, I've loved you, son. And the son says, oh, for eternity, I have loved you. Father. And so the Father says, you know, they don't know that. They don't know this kind of love. They don't know this kind of intimacy that we have. So we're going to send the Spirit. We're going to send the Spirit of the Son. And not just the spirit of the son, we're going to send the spirit of the son to dwell in them and to give them this language so that, so that they now know how to cry out. They know how to call me Abba, Father. It's an Aramaic word. It means dad. You know, Jesus says it once when he's here. 
It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night he's arrested. And he goes in the depths of his anguish. And you know what he says? Abba, Daddy. If there's any other way, would you take this cup from me? But not my will, your will. That spirit, his spirit, and his words, so that you'll know the intimacy, experience what it is. Experience the father-son relationship that Jesus has with the father. That's yours now. That's why J.I. Packer says that adoption, adoption, the highest privilege that the gospel offers. I mean, the gospel comes with amazing things, things we can't fathom, bunch of stuff we don't even know about because we hadn't learned it yet. But adoption's the highest. All right, let me show you one more thing. Okay, I'll show it to you. All right, so, so I said I was getting to 25. I hadn't even started there yet, but look, look with me, all right? Can you look with me? Verse 18, we'll do this quick. So I told you the end of 17, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You'll read that, and some of you will go, yeah, see, I knew. I knew there was a catch. I knew it. It's always a catch. And then look at verse 18. Paul says, for I consider, the words reckon. It's an accounting term. I consider this, I reckon I'm going to make sure that when I add all the numbers, I know that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And then look what he says. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, Creation here is spoken about, and so maybe Paul's just personifying it. Maybe there's something we don't fully understand about creation, but creation longs, it groans. You know what it groans for? You know what creation hopes in? Creation's hope is seeing you revealed in your glory for who you are in Christ. And creation is longing for that day because if you went all the way back to Genesis 3 and you see when Adam and Eve invite sin into the world it not only wrecks or stains their relationship with God not only does it does it bring death into the world for humanity it also ruins creation. Creation was meant to thrive under the care and the shepherding and the leadership of mankind to become a beautiful garden fit for the God of the universe, and we ruined it. And more than that, you know what happens? God pronounces a curse. You know the only thing cursed? It's not man, it's not woman. You know what gets cursed? creation, which I'm sure sitting there going, wait a minute, I didn't eat the tree. I made the tree. Did the fruit of the tree. It was subjected to it, and yet in hope, the hope is that one day the Redeemer would come. One day the head of the serpent would be crushed by the heel of the seed to come, and creation's been longing and waiting for that day. 
And in the meantime, it groans and it suffers. And for we know that whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, not hope. Now hope that is seen is not hope for hope uh, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And then the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. And I'm going to, here's the tension. Paul says in verse 15, we have the spirit of adoption. Paul says in verse 23, we're, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. We have the spirit of adoption. We're groaning and longing eagerly for adoption. And here's what he means. He is saying, he is acknowledging, we have already fully been given adoption. You have the spirit of adoption. You've received it if you're a believer. It's a done deal. Can't be any more true than it is right now. And yet it is not fully experienced as you will experience it. So you live in a time and place called already and not yet. And you live in the midst of that. You already belong to him. You're already a citizen of heaven. And yet you haven't experienced fully all that that means. And because of that, because we live in this in-between, it casts a shadow on everything else in the world. It ruins us for the world in a way that says, you know what, the things I truly long for, the things I truly desire, the, the things that I groan for and ache for, they can't be found here. And that's part of the sweet richness that comes with the Christian life. One writer, C.S. Lewis, said, It was when I was happiest that I longed the most. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing for what is to come. And this suffering, this pain that comes in the meantime. Listen, this is part of the deal. No one has a choice about that. Suffering is a part of the deal. Living in a fallen world on a broken planet, surrounded by broken people, in a broken world system, suffering comes. But it is not without hope. It is not without purpose. Suffering's not the fine print. In fact, the way Paul will say it in Philippians, suffering is the prize. Because, see, we weren't saved to be taken somewhere. We were, be, we were saved to be made like somebody. And so Paul says, Philippians 129, for it's been granted to you. It's been graced. The grace of God has granted to you. That's what he means. It's been graciously granted to you. That for the sake of Christ, you should, he says two things, not only believe in him, as though if he's talking about two things, this is the lesser of the two things. Not only that you believe in him and would be saved and have eternal life, but also that you would suffer. And the way Paul writes it, that's the prize. Because in that suffering comes both a longing and an intimacy with God that cannot be found anywhere else. You talk to people, I talk to people, I meet, they've gone through great suffering, and they would say, I'd never trade a moment of it. I mean, now that nobody's ever asked for it, so, oh, no, I'd never choose that. But I wouldn't trade it for a second. No. And then you watch somebody go through that as a believer. And listen, nobody goes through it perfectly. 
doesn't matter. You just catch the glimpses of God's grace, though, these unexplainable gifts that, that get forged inside of, of a person who suffers. And you see God's glorified in that life, and, and it's you around that, and you feel like, oh, this is like, this is hallowed ground. I ought to take my shoes off here and worship. And then God promises and does that in your life. Chronicles of Narnia, the end of C.S. Lewis's um, deal, the last page of the last book. The kids, the children, you know, Lucy and Peter, and you know, they, they're meeting him. And Aslan, he's the Christ figure of the deal. And they, all through the books, you know, they go to, to Narnia, they come back, they go back to, their, to the real world. They go to Narnia, they come back to the real world. And on the last page, Aslan shows up and, and they, you know, they get downhearted. They're like, oh, no, no, not again. We're going to be sent back to the real world. And the last words Lewis writes in the story. He says, oh, no fear of that. Haven't you guessed? And Lewis, in a real delicate way, is going to deal with, with death and, and, and the reality, so, so, what he's, what he's, so what Aslan is telling these children is that in this thing that you called the real world, but I call the shadow land, there was an accident. And over there, what they say is you died. But what I'm telling you is, is you never go back. And he says, uh, the, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that had begun to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I cannot write about them. And as for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and their, all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. It's the foretaste we have. Talks about, about the first fruits of it. Are you experiencing it? Do you believe it?